we're going to take a two-week break from the book of Mark, um, and we're going to kind of just uh, kind of ramp up or, or kind of go through some things as we lead into steps, as, as our church gets into steps. So if you have your Bibles today, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 10 specifically. Um, and so it's towards the back of your Bible, towards the back of the New Testament. You can use your table of contents as well to find the book of Hebrews. Um, so and, and let me set up a couple things in the book of Hebrews. Uh, well, let me pray, and then we'll set up the book of Hebrews and, and read uh, verses 19 um, and on in chapter 10. Let me pray. Father, I just come before you, Lord, just thankful for today. Uh, thankful for this morning, Lord, that you've brought us together, uh, that we can hear your word and worship together, Father. I pray that you would just open up our hearts and prepare our, um, our hearts and, our, and our, just our souls, Lord, to hear your word this morning, that we may be changed by it, Lord, that we may be um, encouraged by it and strengthened by it, Father. So I pray that you would prepare us this morning, that we would, we would come and experience you and experience your glory, God, uh, in a real way in our hearts this morning. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for all that you're doing. I pray that you speak through me. In your son Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Hebrews, from the fourth chapter all the way to the 10th chapter, the author is building this case that, that Jesus is a superior high priest, that he's, this, he's a better high priest, that he, is, um, he offered not just a sacrifice, but he offered up himself as the sacrifice, um, and that he is the final sacrifice, that he, is, he um, ends any need for further sacrifices, and then that, this discussion reaches a crescendo in chapter 10, where the writer of Hebrew then turns and asks the question, okay, so now that, now, now that we understand the gospel, we understand that Jesus is everything, that Jesus is better than the high priest, that he is the final sacrifice, if these are true, if those things are true, then how do I live? What does my life look like? What does it mean to believe in those things? And so the, the, the author of Hebrews is going to turn into that and begin to answer that question um, in, in chapter 10, verses 19. So we'll read together. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up here. Um, and, and you can follow along with us, verses 19 through 25. And it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the heart, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. There's specifically three things, three specific words I want to talk about. Um, and there's one verse, the beginning, that kind of sets that up. So we'll go through this verse by verse together as we typically do uh, here. But... Um, Verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened up, opened for us through his curtain, that is through his flesh. So because of the work of Jesus, we can boldly enter the presence of God. 
And, and that's a big deal because up until now, as you look through the history of redemption or, or the story of the Bible, up until now, the story has been a story of separation. And so you start even with Adam and Eve and in that moment, that stunning moment when Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden because of their sin, they're driven out uh, where they used to enjoy the sweetness of the presence of God in the morning and now they're driven out. They no longer get to enjoy. That's a horrible moment. It's a scary moment when, when Israel gathers around Mount Sinai and, and the, the glory of God falls down and the, and the mountain quakes and this voice of God booms and says, don't you dare touch the mountain of God's glory because if you do, you will die. And then you have this tabernacle that the Israelites have, and, and, and they're traveling with this tabernacle, and there's this place in the tabernacle where the glory of God resides, and there's this curtain that separates the glory of God from the people, and only the high priest can enter in to the glory of God and, and can intercede on behalf of the people. And so it's this story of separation where, where man and God are separated and there's a mediator who can sometimes enter into that place and, and talk to God on their behalf and, and, and seek forgiveness on the behalf of the people. But ultimately, it's this story of separation. But then we see now, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so Jesus, because of the work of Christ on the cross, we can now enter into the presence of God. We can be re uh, we, can be, we can enter into the presence of God. We can be reunited with God like Adam and Eve were in the garden. So we have this ability to enter into God's presence through the work of Christ. And so literally as you read the story of the death and resurrection of Christ, there's this, there's this um, part where the curtain in the temple is torn. And that is this idea that the glory of God no longer resides in one place, but his people can enter into the presence of God. And, and the glory of God resides in his people and so there's this great news here in Hebrews. And he says, therefore, now that we can enter in with boldness and confidence to the presence of God through, that he made through a living way that he opened up through his flesh. And so we're going to move on from this idea. And there's going to be a couple phrases that start with let us, let us, let us. And so I want us to, to see this see the structure and the grammar of this passage. Um, and forgive me, I didn't go, I didn't finish college. So when I talk about grammar and structure, I, sometimes I can be wrong, but there's this idea that he says, therefore, and then he says, let us. And so the, these ideas of, of these, these phrases where it says, let us, is looking back at what he just said. Because of what I just said, now let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. And so when we, when we look at these things that, that, the author is going to tell us to do or let or that we should do, we should look at that in context of what he just said. And so, um, in, verse, um, in verse 21, it's going to say, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Um, and, so not, and so a high priest, let's talk about priests for a second to make sure we all understand. Priest is typically this idea we get, we, we, when we think of priests today, we think of Catholicism or a Catholic church. We have a priest and he's dressed in black and has this white collar. Um, and there's like this idea of confessions and you go into this booth and you confess to the priest. And, and, and so there, there's this idea that you might not understand, but around priests is that the priest of a Catholic church is a mediator between you and God, that you can't come to God 
and seek forgiveness. So you come to the priest and you seek forgiveness. And then the priest decides how you get forgiveness. And he's this mediator. He's this middleman between you and God, between you and Jesus. And, th- and that comes from this idea of, of the nation of Israel. They had a similar thing. So there was a high priest. There was priest, and then there was a high priest. And the high priest would intercede on the behalf of Israel. Once a year, they would sacrifice um, a goat and a lamb, and, and the, um, the priest would go into the holy holies, the holy place, the glory of God, the presence of God, and he would um, intercede on behalf of the, of the kingdom, the nation of Israel. And it was such a serious event. They would even, um, the, 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 there was like so much washing. There was like, the priest had to wash himself multiple times to make sure he was clean enough to enter the Holy of Holies. Because if he wasn't clean enough to enter the Holy of Holies, he would die when he got in there because the glory of God um, takes so seriously the sin of man. And so um, tradition tells us that, that high priests would even like wear bells and so as long as they heard the bells jingling, they knew the priest was okay. But if for some reason the bells stopped for a period of time, um, they would know that something wrong happened. But they couldn't go in there and get the high priest. So what they'd do is they'd tie a rope to his waist. And if the bells were to stop for some reason, it means the high priest was unclean for some reason. He died being in the presence of God, and they'd have to drag him out of the Holy of Holies through that rope. And so there was this serious moment of once a year when the, when the priest walked in. And here's what the Bible is saying, that we can, we can enter into the presence of God. We don't need bells. We don't need ropes. We don't need all these things. We don't need to take baths because the cross of Christ, the blood of Christ has washed us. There's not all these things we have to do, but these things have already been done for us. And, I, and I'm afraid sometimes for, for myself and for you that, that we get used to this idea that, yeah, I can enter into the presence of God. Like I see that, I read that. That's, that's pretty cool. But it's this amazing truth and it loses its awe oftentimes in our life that we can walk into the presence of a holy God, that he welcomes us there, that he draws us into his presence, that he wraps his arms of love around us because of what Jesus has done, not because of anything that we've done. And so there's this sense of awe that we should have. And verse 21 says that we have a great high priest that not only can I enter into the presence of God, but Jesus is next to God, next to God the Father, interceding on our behalf. And what I mean by that is that he's advocating for us. He's speaking well of us and telling his father to forgive us, telling his father, don't forget Zach, don't forget Wayne, don't forget Margie. He's telling his father, these are my children, like don't forget them love them, give them grace, give them mercy. Now, I want to I go back to um, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in uh, verse 14. You don't have to turn there. I will read it for you. But Hebrews 4, 14, I think, describes this so well. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. So we have this high priest who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and when we're in need and we need grace, he's reminding his father, hey, Zach needs grace right now. He's, he's having a hard time at home and he needs some grace. He needs some mercy. He's speaking on our behalf. And so we have this high priest. And then so 
We're going to get into these let us portions here in verse 22. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance. And so there's this word that I think can encapsulize this, and that word is devotion. That word is devotion. I think sometimes we hear that word and we talk about like, I'm going to have my devotion this morning. I'm going to do devotion or I buy a devotional book. And and we kind of regulate that word down to a moment of my day where I, I, I read, I briefly read some Bible, I say a brief prayer, and then I kind of have, I've... Um, fulfilled my Christian duty for the day, so now I can get on with the rest of my life. But that's not the idea that's presented in here. It says, if, I, if I'm really living a life based on the gospel that I say I believe, based on the gospel that I've received, then my whole life will be a life of devotion. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about the way we talk about devotion as a, as a moment in time and not a uh, not something that takes over our life. That word devotion evokes this idea of, of devoted to, of being all of my life, not devoting a, a moment of time of my day, but devoting my life to Christ. It, it, um, devoting a life of, of worship. And so it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Christianity is not a matter of, of duties and, and, and the kind of habits of reading your Bible and prayer. Those duties and habits are good, but they flow out of a heart that had been captivated by Christ, a heart that's been stolen and owned by Christ. The deepest, fullest passion of my heart is Him. He's my purest desire, my priceless treasure, that He has my love, He has my desires, He has my, my dreams, my purposes, my motivation, that He is everything. And so when I wake up in the morning, I want to spend time with Him. It's not that I feel like I need to before I start my day, but I want to, I desire to spend time with Him. When I end my day, I want to spend time with Him, not because it's an assigned Christian duty that I was told to do, but because He owns and rules my heart. This is what Christianity is about, this life of devotion. This life of celebration of what he's given us. Um, it's a matter of worship. And we've talked a, a lot about worship being our entire lives. And so the Christian life is a life of devotion. And the second word I'd like to talk about is action. So not just devotion, but action. And it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so you might think, well, this verse doesn't really talk about action. It talks about holding fast the confession of your faith. But, but we, we can't look at confession as something we just do with our lips or something we just do with our brain. Christianity isn't about um, an intellectual agreement of saying, yeah, I believe these things are true. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. So now I'm a Christian. It's this confession with your entire life that your life is a confession. It's true belief. This, your life is changed by what you believe. So it's a way of living that's not based on a relationship with those around me or circumstances, but it's a way of living that's based on what? It's based on the, on, uh, he who, on the fact that he who promised is faithful. It's, 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 I'm, not, I'm not doing what I'm doing here because of cir- circumstances are easy or anything like that, but because he who promised is faithful. So I don't do what I do personally 
preach and, and, and lead a, a church plant because it's easy or because I feel good with everyone affirming me um, or because my finances are really better because of it because we don't take any money. Not because my body's healthy or I even enjoy it, but I do it. The one reason I do it is because Jesus has promised and he is faithful. And I believe that. I think this idea is as practical as Christianity can get. Because if you're, if you're in here today and you're married, I want to tell you that the person you're married to at times, the person that you love is going to be unlovable. They're going to be hard to love. And in that moment, when that person you've committed to spend the rest of your life with is unlovable and hard to love, you need the gospel of Christ. You need to, to be reminded that no matter what's going on, I have Jesus, and I have the one who promised, and he is faithful. I have all that I need in Christ, and so I'm going to love, I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be gentle, even though it's hard, not because I'm kind, but because he who promised is faithful. And if you're a parent, and if, if you're a parent in here, I just want to say that you need this verse, that you need this idea, because when you become a parent, you have, um, you've, you've, if you're a woman, you've given birth, if you're a dad, you've done something, but you have this little baby. I think it's funny, I've heard people talk about how, you know, my children are just, uh, what's the, what's the, uh, strong-willed, I have strong-willed children. Has anyone ever heard that? I feel like that's a saying. The Bible has another word for that, and it's called sinners. And that's what all our children are. And, and, and not that, that I don't want to excuse our children's sin, but they're sinners. And I think because our children are sinners and they're born with that nature, like I never had to teach Elium to lie. I never said like, hey, buddy, sometimes your mom's going to ask you some questions and it's going to be better for you if you just lie. He just knew how to do that. Like that was in his nature. He would, I, he would just say, I didn't do that, or it wasn't me, or Salome hit me first, or things that I just knew weren't true because I could watch it. Salome's doing that right now. Um, it was a couple weeks ago, I, I caught her in her, I caught her, I'm sure she'd lied before, but I caught her in her first lie because I watched the whole thing happen. I asked her a question and she lied. I didn't teach her to do that. I didn't, didn't give her some guide on how to get away with things. She just knew how to do that. And so, so when we have children, we're, we're, we're bringing little sinners into this world, little self-sovereigns, people, little, little kids who think their way is better than our way and better than God's way. And we need this verse because when your kids wake up in the morning and you feel like you just want to give up because they've woken up in a crazy mood or you need this verse because he who is promised is faithful. And if I, the, the, the strength, the energy that you're going to need to have this conversation for a thousandth time is going to come from the belief that he who is promised is faithful. Or maybe it's a, a private area of sin in your life where you've made commitments and you've made um, resolution after resolution. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. But, but you've done it for the one thousandth time and you throw your hands up and you just want to give up, you have to understand this verse that he who has promised the author and perfecter of your faith, he is faithful, that Jesus is faithful. And so you don't give up. You, you, you know that I'm going to wake up in the morning. I'm, going, I'm, I'm not going to get up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to resist this evil because Jesus is faithful. And so this confession 
this, this belief in, the, in, in he who promised is faithful will carry us through our Christian life. And it's action. It's, I'm going to have this conversation with my, my son because he who's promised, he who has promised is faithful. I'm going to be kind to my spouse. I'm going to love my spouse, not because of how they love me or what they've done or what they haven't done, but because he who has promised is faithful. There's a, third, there's a third let us here. And it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, if, if I really take the gospel seriously, from, very, from the very beginning, there, there's this theme that that, you, that our walk with God is a community project. This isn't something that you do on your own. I think we've oftentimes have said uh, in our culture that your faith, your religion, your faith is private. And that's absolutely not true. Now, I, I will say that your faith, your belief in God should be personal. It shouldn't be because your parents believe it or your grandparents believed it. Your faith in Christ should be personal. It should be something that you personally believe, but it is not meant to be private. It is meant to be within a community. Let us consider how to stir up one another to, good, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habits of some. This idea of not neglecting to meet together, this idea isn't about don't forget to go to church on Sunday morning, but it's this lifestyle of community. But I do want to talk about Sunday morning. Sunday morning is an important day. Um, I want to talk about something that we haven't talked about before. I'm not talking to anyone in particular. I, just, I, I feel we got, I'm, we're going through this passage. It talks about it, so I want to talk about it. Showing up on Sunday mornings is important. Church service, worship service is important. And it's not important because we have some attendance saying on the wall and I want to make that look really good, but it's because we need you. Like I need the people here and, and, and there's other people here who need you. And they need to see you. They need to talk with you. They need to be friends with you. They need to have fellowship with you. And so I understand that sometimes, and I, hey, like I've, I, I've missed Sundays for vacation. And I think that's totally fine. But there's this sense in our culture where like, you know what? I'm just tired this week. and had a lot going on this week. I'm just not gonna come this Sunday. And, and, and what that shows, I'm just gonna be honest with you. What that shows is this, is this selfishness of, of, of churches about me. And I don't really need it today, so I'm not gonna go. I'm tired. I need rest but what you're forgetting is there's people there who need you. There's people there who need to be around you. They need to hear from you. They need to hug you. And so we, we, we can't regulate church down to this, this consumer idea of like, I need church. I need to hear preaching and I need to, to, to worship with others. And when I don't need to, then I don't need to go. If I feel like I'm okay, I listened to a podcast yesterday. I sang on the way home from Greensboro. Like I feel fine. I don't need to come to church. You're, you're, you're showing that your belief in church is, is what does church give you? And that's not what church is about. Church is about considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. It's about meeting together and breaking bread together and encouraging one another and comforting one another and weeping with one another and rejoicing with one another. And so that's what this community is about. This community isn't about what can I get from this community, but what can you give to this community? So I get that sometimes you're tired, you don't want to come to church. Like sometimes I'm tired, I don't want to preach. I don't want to come to church. It's tiring, I had a long weekend. I drove, we drove a lot this weekend. Started a new job three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Like it's a lot going on. It'd be so much easier just to throw some cartoons on and sleep in my bed today. 
But that's not what this is about. That's not what this community is about. It's not what the gospel is for. Our faith is personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be lived out in an intentionally intrusive community. And what I mean by intrusive is that we need to be humble and honest with one another. If it's going to exist, we have to come to terms with, we don't live in a, in a, in a community of casual relationships where I, I know what sports team that guy likes, but I don't know what's really going on in his life. And let, me tell, let me talk to the men for a second, because this is hard for men. Men don't like sharing what's going on in their lives. They don't even like hearing what's going on in other men's lives. It's just kind of this, this thing that we have. Um, me and Wayne work out together at the gym, and there's been times where Margie, I come home from working out with Wayne, and she's like, how's Wayne doing? And I'm like, I, I don't know. It's like, well, you just spent like an hour and a half with him. I was like, yeah, I know. I don't know how he's doing, though. We didn't talk about that. We just moved some weights around a little bit, and that was pretty much it. So, like, there's this, there's this culture that men don't talk to each other that often, that we don't know what's going on in each other's lives, and that can't be what this community is. This community isn't just about spending frivolous time together or casual time together, but it's intentionally intrusive where we're, we're talking to one another, and we're okay. We have to invite people in, and I, and I mean this. We talked about this before. We have to actually invite people in to speak into our lives, because if you don't do that, when they speak into your life, you're going to be offended, but if you actually go to someone like, hey, Wayne, like when you see something in my heart that doesn't match the Bible, like I want you to say something to me. When I do that, and then a week later when Wayne does it, I, don't, I can't really be offended because I asked for this. Now, I will be offended because I think that's just my nature, but I don't have a reason to be offended. I asked for There's no logical reason to be offended because I asked Wayne to speak into our lives. It has to be intentionally intrusive. We have to step over the boundaries of Western culture in our individualized culture. And we have to remove these boundaries and live life with one another and ask people to speak into our lives and be a part of our lives. And that's how we grow in our faith and that's how, that's how discipleship works. You can't minister to someone you don't know. You just can't do it. It's not, it's not possible to disciple someone, to minister to someone, to encourage someone you don't really know what's going on in their life. So we have to know people and we have to be known. And I'll, I'll close this section with this. Uh, we talked about it before and I've heard a, a pastor say this before and I, and I absolutely love it. But to be 99% known is to be completely unknown. Like if you're like known is either you're known or you're not. There's no, I'm kind of known. To be 99% known is to be completely unknown. If there's a part of you that you're holding back from someone, from a friend, from a spouse, and they don't actually know you, and here's the problem with that in our culture, is that if someone doesn't know you, then you cannot feel loved from that person. You can't. Because here's what you're always going to think. When they show you love, you're going to think, they love this person that I'm letting them see. But if they only knew the real me, if they knew that 1% that I'm holding from them, then they wouldn't love me anymore. It'd be impossible to love me if they knew that 1%. To be 99% known is to be completely unknown. If there's no one in your life who knows all of your hurts, all of your hangups, all of your sin, then you cannot feel loved by, the, by these people. Here's the good news, is that God, 
You can't hide from God. That God knows you 100%. There may be things that you don't talk to God about, but it's not that he doesn't know them. There may be things that you're afraid to come to God about, that you boldly don't enter into his presence because you're afraid, but you don't have to be. And the cross is a picture of his love for you despite knowing 100% of you. The cross is a picture of his love. Even though you were sinners, Christ died for you. Even though you were rebellious, that you did not want anything to do with him, he knowing all that for the joy set before him of being with you, endured the cross. I want to read a little bit further. I don't have it up here. I wasn't going to read this, but I want to keep reading a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, be in Hebrews chapter 10, because it does go on. It's kind of a repeat of what we talked about last week, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Hebrews 10 verse 26 says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which, he is by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That is a terrifying few verses but it underscores the idea that God takes sin serious. I mean, I don't have time to unpack all of this and to explain all of this. We'd be here for a while. But you need to see the words, the language that's being used about sin, that it's trampling the Son of God, that it's profaning the blood of the covenant, and that it is absolutely a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of a living God, that God takes sin so seriously, we ought to take it as serious. We shouldn't, and we live in a culture that long ago has decided not to take sin serious, but instead to, to use sin to entertain us, to use sin to, um, to have fun, to live life. We no longer take sin Serious. We think it's funny. We think it's really good advertising. We think it's entertaining. We think it's not that bad. But because of sin, God takes, it, it, the, the gospel says that, that because sin is so serious, God harnessed the forces of nature and, the, and the, controlled the events of human history so that at one moment his son might be born and live a life of perfection so that he might die for his people. Like he controlled all of human history so that that day would happen. He harnessed the forces of nature, stopped things from happening, allowed other things to happen so that that moment would come to pass that he would die for your sins. That's how serious sin is. The reason why it uses such serious language here is because without taking sin seriously, then we don't take serious the death of Christ on the cross and we trample over the death of Christ and profane his blood. And that's how serious God takes this sin. And so we should take it serious. And so that's why 
we have decided to go forth with steps, this gospel-centered recovery program. That's why it's so important for, for us here at The Grove is because we should take these things serious. And if it takes 13 Sunday nights, that's, not, that's like a drop in the bucket of our time on this earth, and that's okay. And if it takes some time during the week to meet with someone, to talk through what you're learning on Sunday nights, that is part of us taking this serious. This part of our devotion. It's part of our action that we ought to take. So I'm really excited about this because I think it's going to give us the tools and the framework necessary to continue this journey of discipleship, to continue to live life of devotion, to live a life of, of gospel-centered action, and to live a life where we take the things of God seriously. And it's because of, of, that we can come to the throne of grace and we can approach it boldly, and we have this, this high priest sitting next to God the Father giving us mercy and grace in our time of need giving us the grace that we need and the mercy that we need to make it through the day, to make it through that conversation with your child, to make it through the day with your wife or your husband. We have that intercessor. And so I want to sing a couple songs, or I'm not going to sing. Well, I will, but you won't be able to hear it. Um, we're going to sing together a couple songs. And uh, I want us just to be thinking about this today. Where, where, does, where does our life need more devotion? Where does it need more action? Where do we need to take things more serious? Where do we need to take the gathering of God's people more seriously and not neglect the gathering together? So I want to, uh, to sing a couple songs and then I will pray as we close today. Oh man, let me uh, just say this before we, before we pray. So for, for two weeks, we've talked about the seriousness of sin. Today, we added some ideas to that. Um, we added the idea of community, of action, and, and devotion. But I, I just want to say that uh, we are a place where we can be honest about who we are and our sin and where we are. Um, and it's a place where we're going to take the seriousness of our sin seriously. And so... Or, yeah, we're gonna our sin seriously and we're gonna speak into one another, one another's lives in love and with gentle with gentleness. And so um, and put another way, I've heard I've heard it said is that that the grove is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And so we have to be open with our lives and open with who we are and what we struggle with and and, and where we where we have um, disbelief and um, but at the same time, we're a place where we want to move forward. We want to keep growing in Christ and growing in the gospel. And so steps is our way to, to, to really have a, a pipeline, a place where people can go to um, learn the gospel, to learn their sin, um, and how to take it seriously, and how to grow in Christ and community. Um, so I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll be done. Uh, I think there's still some, some delicious bread over there as well. Father... Um, I just come before you, Lord, and I just thank you for the beautiful message of Hebrews, Lord, the um, sufficiency and, and finality of the sacrifice of Jesus that ends the need for any other good works or any other sacrifice, Lord, that we have eternal life, that we have righteousness for all those who believe. Um, I thank you for, for the picture of what it looks like to be someone who's committed to the gospel, who lives a life of the gospel, a life of devotion, action, and seriousness of sin and community. 
I pray that that portrait, that picture would be a picture of us here, God, that we would, we would live a life of the gospel, Lord. Um, so I pray that you would just continue to, to work in our hearts, Lord, to speak to our hearts and to give us grace at that moment of need, Lord, to give us mercy at that moment of need and that our life would look like what it is described here in Hebrews. We pray for that, not only for our sake, Lord, or for the Grove's sake, but for our community, for the Tow River area, Lord, for Spruce Pine, Burnsville, Bakersville, wherever um, your people are found. For the furtherance of your kingdom, Lord, and for the sake of your glory, we pray. And it's in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys.